Hey everybody, this is an episode about Yanni. No, not that Yanni. Well, mostly not that Yanni, but that's another story for later. I'm talking about this Yanni. Don't smile. You, you look like a piece of shit when you smile. Don't smile. Yeah, that's my neighborhood. He's a piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for real. But he's a good guy. I treat him like a brother. I'm just playing with him. We spent 13 months together in Iraq from 2006 to 2008 doing some of this. But mostly driving around finding way too many IEDs. Woo! Okay. Ah shit, that's shrapnel, baby. <laughs> Hitting some others talking to old Iraqi men and drinking tea with entirely too much sugar. He was one of several interpreters, all of which used fake names I worked with over that deployment. We lived together, ate together, and faced most of the same dangers together. Using the word interpreter feels a bit wrong though. That would assume he simply took one person's words and conveyed them in English as best he could, and vice versa. But this simply was not the case. Yanni, or Sam, as I know him now, was truly an educator. He and his brothers took a few cocky 24-year-old lieutenants and taught them about his life, his country, and the good and bad things about people are universal. People, generally, want their families to be safe, and in nearly every place there are assholes just looking for power. Strange things happen in wars. Enemies are simplified into evil henchmen that can only be one way, not the complex history of influences and emotions that they are. Bystanders become mere complications to what is thought to be a simple, algebraic expression of conflict, not the complex algorithm with more variables that can easily be expressed that it really is. The world is distilled into some non-reality that makes hasty and violent action easier, but compassion scarce. I can say, for my part, that Sam and our other interpreters sharing their lives made me that much more aware of how quickly a bad decision that I made could impact the lives of the people around us. Hearing his history and stories did that. So this is the first of two episodes about Sam. In this one, he'll share with you what he did with me, his history, and the stories of his life. And in them, the story of the lives of Iraqis from the beginnings of the Ba'ath Party to when Saddam's statue toppled in Baghdad in 2003. This will be a longer episode than the previous ones, but completely worth it. Trust me. Welcome to No Shit, There I Was, a podcast committed to telling the stories you may never otherwise hear. So settle in, kick back, and take it all in. I just want to leave with the fact that that was not actually a Yanni song, but here are a few notes before we get started. First, I have added some extra context in the episode. Some things that Sam explains have a larger historical scope, and that context helps in understanding their impact. Second, Sam does have an accent, but trust me, your ears will adjust quickly. Listen for a few minutes and you won't notice. It's called lexical processing and it's magical. Plus, Sam is very easy to listen to. Finally, we had to record early in the mornings at Sam's work, which is running his food truck. You'll notice some background noise, but Sam says it best. I don't live in a quiet life. My life is... And of course, he was right. So here we go. So let's just like kick off with introduce yourself. What are you? Uh, yeah. So yeah, I got. It. So my 
one of my name. Would you mean my real name? My real name is Sarmad. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm old, born like 1974. Uh, born so and old. So old, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I born in one of the most beautiful neighborhoods in Baghdad. So Baghdad is big city. And it's not like super big at those days, or maybe it was big. And in my neighborhood, it was very beautiful. And uh, uh, looks like like kind of maybe rich people living there, but we weren't rich. We were like very normal family. My dad was working for factory. He was like kind of manager there. And uh, our house very small rented house. And the beautiful thing about my neighborhood, most of my neighbors they were foreigners. These foreigners, they were most of them from Eastern European. So next door, they were Hungarians from Hungary. And the other neighbor, they were, I think, uh, Russian. And there's another Russian family. And there is a Japanese uh, company, like half a block from the house. There is a Chinese uh, neighbors. There's Sudanian neighbor, multiple different neighbors, I remember. And there's uh, two neighbors, we were Indian. And wow. Yeah, these Indian people, they were like, looks like very family and they do have their own their dog. And that's abnormal kind of to have a dog at those days. But they were very nice dog. And there's some Iraqi families around as well. And... Uh, I mean, that's, uh, that's, what, that's, that's, a, that's a very diverse neighborhood. That's, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of different people. A lot of different people. More than I thought uh, would yes. be. Uh, that's back days in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s. And I was remember like most of my neighbors, they were taking me with chocolate things. And I, I love that chocolate. I love chocolate anyway. Yeah, and I know you do. Yeah, I, love, I still love chocolate. Well, what was it? How, how different was it? You know, in in 1970s and early 80s, Baghdad, like, because I know that, you know, in in a lot of different countries in the Middle East and in that time, it was just so much different. You know, that was before. Yes. uh, Before a a big revolution and and Islam as far as as far as uh, it becoming more strict. I'm just going to cut myself off real quick. This is one of those questions in an interview you want to take back and ask again. Fortunately, Sam knows what I'm talking about here, but for you, the audience, let me explain. The revolution I speak of is more of a movement, one that's been underway in one form or another for over a century, the most recent and popular form of which is Salafism. While there are schisms within that whole movement, the core aspiration is to return to more literal and traditional dogmatic practices and beliefs that were believed to be sidelined by Western-influenced modernity. I think for most Americans, a comparable sentiment would probably be the impolitic desire to return to some idealistic time of good manners in the atomic family, though with more intensity. Anyway, the point is that even though Saddam openly refuted this movement, he incorporated parts of it into a more state-sponsored faith movement to try and mitigate the political backlash experienced when a government represses religion. Much like Beirut in 1975 and Tehran in 1979, Baghdad found itself in more conservative times in the 80s, with men dressed in more traditional dishdashas and women covering themselves with hijabs. Though, to give Saddam some credit, 
it happened through less bloodshed. Yes. Uh, I was got back to the 70s. I had a lot of stories from my father and his friends and uh, from my uncles. Uh, later on, I heard from my uncles because all my uncles, I'm talking about my father's side, by the way, uncles and aunts, always I'm talking about my father's side. I don't have yeah. that. Yes. I don't have that relationship with my uncles and aunts from my mother's side. Okay. For reasons. So about uh, the people that days in 70s, I remember if you take the bus from our house going to the main, uh, to the downtown, I would say, downtown Baghdad, it would take about like between five to eight minutes by the bus. So very close. You can make a walk, like about 20 minutes walking. And it's so beautiful. There's a lot of restaurants, nice hotels uh, around uh, these things. And you will see cinemas in there, theater movies. Theater movies, at those days, I do remember we went there. I was maybe four years old, but I remember. I don't remember my father was with us, but I remember my mother and two girls. They were relative to us. I don't remember who they are. And uh, which is neat, it was 1978 or 9, 79. And I don't remember I watched the movie with them. We were comfortable with the movie. No one said anything. And there's families there. There's maybe girls in there in that place. And we finished the movie, it was late, it was like around maybe 10 or 11, because I was so sleepy. And one <laughs> of the girls carried me, and how we went back, I remember we went back to the house using a bus as well. And our buses back days in Baghdad, there were two floors, the same one in, in London. So yeah. it was so beautiful. Double. Double. Yes, yeah, so beautiful. Because I remember they took the wrong one. It should be number 13. They took number 12. So it's met another curve. And then we get out from there. The service was almost 24-7 for the buses in Baghdad. So, yeah, it is. So when you see females going to the theater movies, and they are modern, they don't wear what they wear. Like, I don't know about Iraq now, 100%, but they don't wear, like, uh, tradition. Uh, it was beautiful. We were surrounded in our neighborhood by a lot of what is called churches. Yeah. Uh, uh, beautiful churches. We are Muslims, yes, but we were able to go to the church and uh, celebrate with them. We do have a lot of friends. They were Christian. And even my name, Asarmad, it's uh, it's Arabian name, yes. And mm-hmm. uh, at the same time, Christian people, they do have this name more than the Muslims. So, because maybe we were living in that neighborhood, we had some influence with those things. So, they, I've been named with this name. So, I'm not sure 100%. Yeah. And the people they were very open, uh, especially the Baghdadian people. They were very unique. Because my father originally from different city about uh, 75 miles southwest Baghdad. So when we're going there, they are pointing on us by saying the Baghdadian, which is mean we are distinguished, we are from Baghdad. And that's make me feel like we are uh, unique people, like uh, why? And it's, it's because Baghdad was beautiful, well, Baghdad was clean. 
Baghdad was the services we were it was so good. Yeah. Then the war started 1980. And the Iran Iraq. Iraq Iran yes started. Why started was this and this. Uh, we were kids. We were, our parents weren't able to talk in front of us about things because we might say something to the schools. And we say something to the school, our parents, they will got troubles. And, yeah. uh, especially uh, my father was against the uh, regime at those days. Not officially, but unofficially he was. Uh, most of the educated people, they were against the regime of Saddam Hussein those days because that regime was taking people, Ba'ath Party was taking people to the back days. And war, for what? There is no reason, kind of. Did it's you know, just a war. Did you know much about the Ba'athists at that point? Or, or did you, was it just kind of, I, you were a child, so I mean. I was a child. I, I, I never, it. yeah, know about these things. But Ba'ath Party, they have programs. They have a war saying, uh, guarantee the youth, you will guarantee the future. So I heard this in the school many times, and I wasn't know what does this mean. Now I know what this means. Like if you raise one generation, this generation will be yours in the future when they go up. And that's uh, the point, like the same Nazis. That's Nazis. That's the same fascist. The bad party they were the same, Stalin the same, same. So yeah. these regimes, they are meet in the same goals. They want to prepare generation for the future to be supported to them. Same thing with Al-Qaeda in Iraq. If you remember, uh, they opened uh, kind of schools for to teach the kids Islamic things, to prepare these kids for the, uh, for the future to be for their sites. And that's very important for them. They I remember want those it. reports. Yes, you remember them. So that's what they were doing. They do have programs, they do have things, they do have some activities after school activities. After school activities, they were make like sports and these things and these yeah. things run by some bad party members. We never been encouraged by our parents to go, but they told us to go to avoid any could be problems because we would not go. Why these kids not going? Yeah. They will ask these questions. So that's what we face in the schools, early the schools. And uh, step by step, we start our learning was the correct thing, was not correct. So, I mean, is that something that you came to by yourself, you know, learning that what they were teaching you wasn't the right thing? Is that... Did you just hear what they said and kind of go, oh, that doesn't sound right? It's, uh, most of the time, uh, I was hearing this from my father. Okay. So I was listening to him perfectly and carefully. And, wow. Uh, yes. But he was so careful how to tell me about the things, how to tell me that this is kind of top secret, don't talk about this. But he, he didn't mention his top secret. This is correct, it's not correct. It's what you should do, this is not what you should do. So he was so smart to throw things in my mind without making me feel he telling me or he pointing for something 
I was just taking it like with the easy way. Is your father still alive today? No, he died uh, in 2012. Okay. So I, I've been here. I was here when he died. Okay. I'm sorry, yeah. man. Yeah, it's, he was sick and uh, I was, no, he was going to die when I was moving. And he was, no, he was going to die when I moved. Uh, we were we were good friends, <clears throat> not just father and son. <clears throat> so we were so good. And uh, sounds, like they, it. sounds like a, a great relationship. We were, yes, yes. We were so good relationship. Like very, I was the second one in the family, and he has four kids, four boys, and one uh, dog. But I was very, very close to him, more than the rest. <clears throat> That's because like we were always good and good and uh, talk about things and not only me and him but him and his friends because I was going with him with his friends. Yeah. And in 1978, 1979, most of my uncles they moved outside Iraq. Oh wow. Yeah, I didn't see them till 2003 when the regime done in Iraq. You know, you kind of talked about the Iran-Iraq war starting like. That was a long, long war. Eight years. <laughs> yeah, no, I guess not quite as long as you know our time in Afghanistan. Um, but you know, that was a long time. What, what was that like being in Iraq at that point? Yeah, it's actually uh, the war starts on the borders. Yeah. And uh, it looks like the first month or first three months, Iraqi army could to invaded uh, the cities along with the uh, borders between us, between Iraq and Iran. That's a sign that uh, the Iraqis start the war because the Iranians, they were busy with their revolution, as they say, call it. They were busy with how to set up everything. They, they, I, I don't think they were ready for any war. Saddam just uh, surprised them, I think, with this. And that's what I heard later uh, after the war. But, like, I heard this about this when i been maybe 20 years, maybe 18 years old. Start here about this from my father and the friends, and to start the war, how the war started. So, and it's very sense, yes, because they just start the revolution and they want to push the old regime, connect to the Shah, which is mean yeah. the king of Iran, push them away, and uh, that's what's happened. So they are, I'm sure they were so busy with the domestic things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, yes, there was a lot yeah. going on there. So, yeah, the war was like just just for nothing. In 2004 or five, I met one of the people who is uh, start working for the, Iraqi, the new Iraqi government. And uh, he was at those days, that days he, his father was ambassador or something, working for the Iraqi government when Al-Bakr was a president, the former president before Saddam. Yeah. And... Uh, he told us the Iraqi budget before the war one day was extra money there with all these projects, with all these payments for their employees, whatever things. The Iraqi budget was extra money, uh, 270-something billion dollars. That's extra money. And uh, after the war, when the war done by 1988, the Iraqi budget was minus almost $400 billion. Wow. So that's a big, huge difference between this one and this one. So, which is mean Iraq lost about 
one trillion dollar and eight years pushing oil in the market and all this went away was the results for this war we imported from egypt from sudan workers we need lovers yeah all the young all the iraqis they were on the border fighting uh, they have to go to the war it's not a choice go to the war or go to the execution uh, fields they will guard them they will kill them but far they were everywhere they were your neighbors they were there they were in the street checkpoints everything so we do have a lot of uh, i would say call them security forces starting from the army regular army republic army security whatever thing is called and uh, or they troops the son of Saddam and intelligence uh, something army intelligence something all these things yeah it is it's terrible things so all these uh, security things they weren't like easy if they suspect about anyone they can just turn the street or take him uh, to the east of Baghdad to Diyala or Bagova they were shoot them and there kill them and threw them the canal it's a big canal kind of river yeah kill them finish them there then when the local people find that dead body it's unknown dead body and who knows about that dead body that's happened yeah i mean how did life change for you know, did you notice a lot of this stuff when you were a kid and when yeah. i was a kid i just heard that my uncles my aunt move out of iraq yeah we weren't able to say i do i wasn't able to say oh my uncle living in England or in Romania or Bolivia or Argentina. I wasn't able to say this. If I say this, I will get problems. They will ask questions. Why they are there? Why, how they move there? How they love them? And maybe they will not ask me directly. They will ask. They will find out. Then they will come to my father. If they will come to my father, they will take him to the somewhere and they will maybe torture him, maybe this and this, because in Iraq back days, we do have two parties against the government, the communist and Al-Dawa party. Al-Dawa party, who they are ruling the country now. They are like Shia party. This yeah. party is supported by Iran, and uh, Saddam was, like, start killing them in 1979, and when they got somebody, they were suspect he is from Dawa Party. They will take him from the school. Like my father's uh, cousin, he was 17 years old. And uh, he'd been taken from the school by the government at those days. That's 1980. And disappeared. Nobody found him. Even till our days, nobody found the dead body. They were taking them, tortured them. Maybe they will die under torturing, or maybe they will kill them later. And threw the dead body somewhere. And somebody said, oh, it's a new thing, this killing in Iraq after 2003. I thought, yes, that's what we see. Before, we don't see. Nobody can talk. His family never talked about this, ever, to anyone. Wow. Because they were scared. And wow. they kept it, like, we were no. Everybody, we were, we were no about this, but... We can't say anything. Like we are family, we can't say anything. We just kept it and shut our mouth. Neighbors, their neighbors, they were no. He'd been taken. 
and nobody knows what's happened to him. Of course, they finish him and they threw the dead body somewhere. So it's the same thing happened after 2003, but was more public. It was, I would say, excellent, yes. And, you know, there's some technology, there's YouTube, Facebook, whatever, we will talk about these things. Back days, there is no this technology. There is no social media. Even there's some social media, we were not able to do anything when Saddam was in the power. But when you go to Iraq as a foreigner, you will go, you will enjoy, you will go to hotels, you will live anywhere in Iraq. And people, they were very peaceful people. They were so lovely people. And if you go out of Baghdad, you will not see that much of hotels. You will say, okay, I'm here. I need a place to spend my night, just my night. You can't go to any house. Knock on the door. They will be, you'll be welcome anywhere. And they don't know you. Yeah, it doesn't matter for them. You'll be a guest. So this is the culture of the Iraqis. After 2003, this disappeared from the Iraqis, yeah. this culture, because people were scared from each other. And that's what's happened. Like, uh, things changed. War changed people. Somebody said, or told me a long time ago, the war is not a problem. After war is a problem. How do you mean? What he mean, I don't I didn't understand what he meant. What does mean? Eight years of war with Iran. The generation, one million people being killed from Iraqi side. One million women stayed with no husbands. One million child at least raised without a father. One million crime happened with people along with eight years. I just want to cut in and clarify something here. Sam's figure is a little off. And when that happens, people tend to dismiss the story. Unfortunately, death tolls are rarely ever reported accurately, and it often takes years to sift through misinformation to get to accurate records. A 30-year anniversary article from The Guardian placed the losses, including civilians, from Iranians at an estimated 1 million and anywhere from 250 to 500,000 for Iraqis. This does not, however, take away from the point about the impacts of all that loss for a country, which Sam describes so well. Which is mean the result is going to be so bad. Which is mean there is people being raised without manners, without anything. Father in their life is very important. It's very, very important. Like a mother and father, they are very important together to be in the family, on the head of the family. But you want yeah. to take one of them, there's a big deal will happen. Maybe it's not going to, you will not see it, but in the future, you will see it on your kids. It's, they will not be happy, maybe. They will be maybe more angry. Maybe who's going to teach them about the life, about love, about business? Mother teach the kids love and how to be kind. The father teaches kids how to be good and strong and uh, respected and this and this. So each part of the family, of the parents, they teach about something. So that's very important. So eight years of war, economy. We, we never felt that the economy has a problem, but there is a problem, of course, of the economy. And the society starts going down. People start losing their kind. They start using many of things in their life. Yeah. So I mean, uh, that's what's happened in, in Iraq that's in, back then in the 80s. Then 
we start see these things like women start to be uh, going with more tradition. Uh, back then, start different, going to be different. How is going to be different? Baghdad was belong to the Baghdadian. People from the south, we are living in the south. People from the north, we are living in the north. But then they created a new law, a law for the people from Salah al-Din, which is mean the area of Saddam Hussein and his people, and people from Al-Anbar, which is near Abu Ghraib, Ramadi, Fallujah, whatever these areas, is a law for them to buy houses in Baghdad while people from the south or north they are not able to buy in Baghdad. They yeah. can rent, but they can buy. And when I was kid in my neighborhood, I can't go outside my door, my house door, with my pajama. Even I'm a kid, people they will say, oh, or other kids will say, oh, he, 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 he's like wearing pajama outside the house. Oh, that's not nice. So I did this once, and one of my friends see me, oh, you're in your pajama, and it was like kind of funny for me. So I, I stopped doing this at all. So, which is mean, like, it's, it's not nice to go outside your pajama. We weren't able to, we never see somebody like, especially the Baghdadi people, they were like, you know, the tradition dishdasher, like we have seen them in Agar Goof, a lot yeah. of people, because that's country, the tradition dress is not in Baghdad. But after 1982, 83, 84, if you see this, it means this person is rich or something or imported. So people, they start going back, they start stepping back. And since they go to be more modern, like they were modern. Like when you are going to be modern, why you are going back, step back? Because yeah. the society. So they try to pull the people back. And they succeed with this, by the way. Yeah. They succeed. So uh, they could do change many of things with the people, and many of tradition things being changed. I'm talking yeah. about Baghdad a lot because it's my city. I love it, and uh, no. I feel sorry for for this city. It was so beautiful, so so beautiful. No, and then it's great. Yeah, it's lost a lot of uh, things. Like I live now in Austin, Texas. I love Austin. Austin is not like I walk in Austin. I live in Austin, and basically now I live just about a mile from Austin in another city called uh, Frugalville. It's just one mile. You don't feel it like it's, it's connected. Yeah. And it's different. Like people there is different. And uh, yeah. while all the people look like same, but for me, I know it's different. Like I feel it. I feel it's different of things. It was August 8, 1988. The war between Iraq and Iran finally stopped. And it's been stopped by too much efforts uh, between the West and the East side of the world, and they pushed them to sign to stop uh, that war. Yeah. And what was life like between then and the invasion of Kuwait? Was life any different between the two wars? Yes. This time, it was quiet. Like, uh, there is no any problems. People, they were just uh, busy with their work, with their life. People who've been in the army for a long time, of course, being forced to be in the army for a long time, the regime, Saddam regime, at that day, they started uh, releasing them from the army. And uh, 
I think more jobs were available for them at the same time, for everybody, kind of. And uh, the life was very quiet, very, very cool. Economy, the economy was the same. You don't feel like there is bad economy or something. Uh, the economy was the same, looks like the same. During even the war itself, and after the, the, the war done, till 1990. At those days, it looks like Saddam regime was looking for make some benefits somehow to pay off how much they own for a lot of countries, including Kuwait. Yeah. And one day and other, I was 17 years old in 1990, and Saddam invaded Kuwait. I wasn't know Iraq invaded Kuwait till I see this after a whole week on the news, like uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait and already. Uh, what is this? Then I asked my dad, what's going on? He said, you're not going to Kuwait. Oh, oh my God. Ah. So, Kuwait is a very small country. And they don't have any good forces in there or army or something. Kuwait is like maybe bigger than a little bit bigger than Baghdad. And they invaded them. I start see Kuwaitian people with their cars has uh, a Kuwaitian uh, plate license number. Seems kind of strange that their country got invaded, but they ended up in Baghdad. Yes, if they were rich, they were able to rent houses or apartments, whatever, in Baghdad or anywhere. If they don't have money, like the foreigners who they were working in Kuwait, they were staying in their buses, like yeah. school school buses uh, or uh, like transportation buses. They were staying there, like Filipinos, Indians. And they were trying to sell like small things like cameras, uh, watch, anything to make uh, some ca- cash for themselves to eat. Yeah, and, uh, but in Baghdad. In Baghdad. And I heard, I was like a kid at those days, I was like 16, 17 years old. I heard like some Asian girls, they were sell themselves for like, for example, five, ten dollars. That's terrible. Yeah. Because they want, they want just to get some food. Like they want to live. Yeah, that is terrible. Till, yeah, tell their governments they did something for them. And uh, yes, it looks like the, uh, the regime addressed days. You know, they got out from Iraq-Iranian war. They own a lot to many of countries. To Russia, with a lot of money. To other countries. And rooted Kuwait. That's because I think Saddam invaded Kuwait not only for the oil, but he thought himself he's going to control the oil in the Middle East. And if you control that oil, right. you will control a lot of things around the world. So Kuwait is not like just a small country. Kuwait is a very important country for the West especially for the United States. So don't mess with this country. They sign, they have companies in there, they do have a lot of benefits between these both countries. And like it's not acceptable you invaded a small country and show yourself you are the man of the Persian Gulf with this way. So right. they decided to finish this invasion and they started the war in 19, 
1991, and not only the war, Iraq was under siege. And during the war itself, the Iraqis, especially the Shia people, they found it's the best opportunity for them to make the revolution against the regime. It's important to note here, too, that George H.W. Bush had encouraged both the Kurds and the Shia to go ahead and rise up against Saddam, stating that the U.S. would support them if they did so. So they started from the south down to the other province, and even in Baghdad, some ne- big neighborhoods, like a southern city, what we call now southern city, it was called Saddam City. Uh, that's so funny. It was Saddam City before, now it's called Southern City. The humor Sam's probably pointing to is the irony that a place Saddam named after himself is now, after 2003, named after a Shia cleric who is strongly connected to the Iranian regime under Ali Khamenei. So this city or this area started to be against the regime itself because majority of them, they were Shia. They were Sunnis. Yeah. The Sunnis, they, it doesn't mean the Sunnis, they want Saddam. No. But there is kind of benefits, powers for the Sunnis as much as Saddam the power. And the Sunnis were just been watching what's going on, what will happen. The Shia people, they carry out the, the revolution on their shoulders and they were saying they want a, uh, a Shia leader or leadership. And it's not acceptable that much, much because it's Iraqi revolution, so they should say we need a real Iraqi person or people to rule this country. But since of this, it's been kind of towards kind of a path of religion, not like about the country. So right. Al-Anbar province, Salah province, half of Baghdad city and the other province and Mosul. They didn't do anything. So Kurdistan, in this case, which is means three pro- big provinces, they cut themselves off from the main regime. They are Kurdish. And it was the best opportunity for them. Especially their leaderships uh, are known for the people. And they were there for a long time, for tens of years. They were fighting against Saddam and his regime. So when the regime being very weak during the war, they pop up and they announce there's no bath party anymore in here and there's nothing in here. We are the Kurdish people who we are going to rule our what's called like our region by ourselves. They've been supported by the Americans and they were so happy to do to have their freedom finally from the Arabs or from Saddam. Yeah. The Shia people they were thinking the Americans going to keep going to Baghdad. And General Schwarzkopf, I think has his name, he was the leader for the collection uh, forces at that That's date. right. That's right, Norman Schwarzkopf. Yes. And Storm and Norman is what yes. they called him. That guy was about 60 miles from Baghdad. We don't know if Saddam was in Baghdad, was in Tikrit, we don't know. But Baghdad is the, the main city. Baghdad is the capital. 
who take Baghdad as me take all Iraq. So all the province, they were by the hands of the Americans or the British or the Iraqi themselves, who they are waiting the Americans to finish Saddam to start a new age. Instead of this, the Americans stopped and they turned their back and they went back to the borders between Iraq and Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Kuwait. What was the general feeling about that? Like, what was, I mean, guess, what was the feeling at the time? Like, when, when uh, that when that happened, how did people feel about it? The people felt uh, the Americans, they lied on them. The Americans, they gave up, let them down. And that made the people, they don't have fully confidence that the Americans, they were there for them. Because everybody knows not the Iraqis, not the Kuwaitian. They want Saddam to be there. They want anybody, but not Saddam. Saddam was dangerous for his people, his own people, and he is dangerous for everybody else. So yeah. no one wants Saddam. The big hub came when the Americans came. We were happy, like, when each rocket was hit, Saddam Hussein palaces, power places, headquarters, we were happy. The war of 1991 wasn't clean 100%. There's many of innocent people being killed, bridges being destroyed, power plane being destroyed, uh, communication places being destroyed. These stuff are, belong to the Iraqis to help them for their yeah. life. So it wasn't for belong to Saddam. And there is a shelter was in the west side of Baghdad, and it's been hit with two rockets killed all the people there. Yes, I understand. Saddam put some communication stuff in there in the bottom of that shelter. That's caused the American, uh, Americans targeted that uh, shelter and, and destroy it. But many of people, kids, women, whatever, being killed. So the first war, I always say, it wasn't correct one. It was like uncompleted. Nobody finished it because he was there. He stayed there. The American turned their faces and they told him, we're done. We're going back. Our goal is to liberate Kuwait. What about the liberation of Iraqis? Nobody cares right. for that. So that's, that was a big deal. But then afterwards, Saddam had a really brutal action against those uprisings and against the people that that rose up against them, for both Shia and Kurdish. What did you see of that? What did you ever witness any of that or see any of the impacts of that? In Baghdad, I didn't see this. The war was there, and the war was everywhere, 1991. So after the war done, as we heard, or I heard, because it looks like we weren't talking about specific things. Shia, they want this. Kurdish, they want this. The Kurdish areas very far from Baghdad. Shia areas, uh, we will live in uh, a neighborhood, for example, in Baghdad. Uh, it has Shia, it has Sunnis, but no one talk. We don't talk. People, they don't talk about like adult people, big people, old people. They don't talk about these things because it's not safe. So I decided to go to visit my aunt in South of Iraq, South of Baghdad. 
So I just went to the main garage because I can't find the bus to go there. And it was shortage of buses and people, a lot of people, they try to go uh, to their destination, wherever. I pushed myself on one of the buses and I found myself in that small town. It was dark and there's few checkpoints in our way. Checkpoints, Iraq has checkpoints, so it's not a big deal. And as I said, I was like 17, maybe 18. And I do have my ID as I'm a student in Baghdad and these things. So when I get out from the bus, it was dark already. And the city was sleeping under darkness. There is no power. And this is the first thing. So I get out. I was trying to walk through the town to my aunt's house. And Iraqi soldier asked me, you from where? I came from where? So I'm from Baghdad. I'm here to visit my aunt. He said, oh, from Baghdad, Baghdad. Hey, welcome. I told him, uh, what's going on here? I wasn't, no, like, is, like, we call it revolution. He said, oh, no, nothing. We are just here. But it looks like the city suffered from some fighting because I've seen, like, some houses uh, destroyed or the, the main market was not like this looks like before. And yeah. I knock on the door of my aunt and uh, she opens the street. What you doing here? How you came? I thought, oh, what is this? I'm just here. And she said, come, come inside. Like, and she started telling me what's going on. Said, oh, my God. People, young people, they involved with these things. And the next morning, I decided to go to visit my other aunt about five miles in the countryside. So it's a small town for my first aunt and my second aunt and her family. So I took my transportation to them. And they got surprised. Like, I came. How you came? I thought, oh, this and this. Because they don't know. There is no news. There is nothing. There's no cell phones, there's no phones, there's nothing. And uh, I had my lunch with them. Then they told me, it's not safe for you. You need to go. So, okay. I felt that something is wrong. It wasn't safe for young people to be in those areas. And then I went back to Baghdad. And my father was super worried about me. He said, how you did this? Why you did this? I thought, I just want to go visit my aunt. Like, what's the deal? He said, it's a big deal because you don't know what's going on. Uh, no, I wasn't. No, what's happening in there looks like terrible. She said, "He said, okay, you are here now, so we want no problems." So, Man, that's that's wild. So that's more or less after. Now there, you you know, we kind of talk about the the whole time from 1991 through 2003, which if I'm thinking right, that's pretty much your 20s. What was life like for you then? You know, you're at that point, you're yeah, you're out probably looking for work. What was life in Iraq? So uh, this 13 years, was maybe more specific about my family, we have, like, uh, my, my dad has a job, good job. But all the business in Iraq dropped down. There is no any import or we were under siege. Like, there is nothing that go out from Iraq. So there is no money is coming. The payments for employees, teachers, doctors, whatever, engineers, it's not enough, barely enough. And there is no enough medicine. For people like you go to the doctor and he will write you a prescription and you go to pharmacy maybe we got half of it maybe none maybe it was hard to find medicine i would say baghdad was maybe better than the others yes 100 percent it was better but it was hard days you go to the market make shopping you don't have enough money to buy things food it disappeared like people they just rich people they can buy foods but people like from middle class, no, there's no middle class. They are poor people or rich people only. 
and uh, the, the government created a program like it's called the Russian card. The Russian card, it has like maybe eight items, soap, oil, uh, rice, flour, whatever things. No meat, of course. So these things and take care for yourself. And it's kind of free, but it's, it was hard. Like we will eat bread. It looks like black bread. It's, it's not a bread bread. And uh, it was so bad 13 years. This 13 years, people, they try to create anything to to prepare themselves. So it's actually, it has like a few years. The first few years, it was super hard. 1996 or seven, the United Nations opened more space to Iraq. There's a agreement they made with the Iraqis, Iraqi government. They will take the oil, they will sell it, the money will be there, and they will buy the food for them, and this, that, this. So there's rules. In the same time, uh, between Iraq and Jordan, but this way it was open, stayed open. Then the oil was going from Iraq by the trucks going to Jordan. So they were able to sell, uh, the government, they were able to sell oil through Jordan and make money for themselves. So, and to take care for things. So this United Na- Nation, I would say, uh, and actually the, the U.S. tried to push the Iraqis to make a new revolution against the regime. Or they were punished the regime itself to not buy weapons and bomb their military things again because there is no uh, resources. So that's what happened. 1997, more things started. You can see uh, the Russian card from 10 items to 15 to maybe 16 items. As better items, uh, the food start going to be a little bit better than it was. And in 2000 or 2001, it started to be better than the, the, the first 10 years. The government, Iraqi government, they raised the payments for the people a lot. And uh, the employees who they are working for government, they start to have, like, enough, I would say, some enough money to survive uh, for a whole month, for example. And then 2003 came. What did you do in those years? I was a student in uh, college, finished my college, 1996. And by this way, how we were able to survive? The question here. I do have three aunts and three uncles who live in Europe. And these people, they will collect every month 20, 30, 40, 50 dollars from this, from this, from this. They were making about $200 a month. And they were sending every month to us $200 for my dad and $100 for him, $50 for my aunt, my big aunt, and $50 for my other aunt. So to help us to survive. I finished the college in 1996 or 7, 97. And my aunt in Sweden, she tried badly to make immigration for me, papers, anything, any way. She tried to get me out from Iraq, especially me. And they, That's a great they, family. It is. I do have a very great family. That's because I, I'm so good with my family too now. So there's a program in Iraq. You can, I have to go to the army 18 months. So she said, I'm, there is a replacement. So if you pay $500 at those days, equal to 750,000 Iraqi dinar, they will release you within 90 days. So she said, 
go to the army. I'm going to send you $500. I found out this big at those days. So she sent the money, $500, and that's help. We paid it for the government. They released me after only 90 days from the army and all done. So I tried to get a passport. I don't know why they didn't give me a passport. And the way from Iraq to Sweden through Turkey or through Syria, something is wrong happened. Like I should go to Kurdish area from Kurdish area to Turkey from Turkey to Greek from Greek. to it, it's, it's long thing. So my yeah. father, my father said, uh, I prefer to see my son here with me rather than to give him go through all these ways. And I don't know if he's going to survive or not. He's a father. I understand this. So I stayed in Iraq. Then, as I told you, like, where is, after 1997, 1998, where is good business starting in Iraq? And my uh, father's friend, was a very rich person. My, my dad was working with them for a long time. They trust my, my father a lot. Right. So they opened like company for foods, the date food. We were collecting dates uh, from the farmers, put them in big storage areas, and then send it to to Dubai. They were selling them in Dubai. So we are making good money uh, from this. And uh, next year we did the same. And for them, we were paying us like payment. So I was like an accountant for the company and collector and everything. And 1999 or 2000, they stopped doing this. And uh, uh, I started working for a company, another one. And he was like engineer for something. But I wasn't like engineer or something, but I was like uh, just office manager there for him. Right. For his office. In 2001, I got a new car, brand new car. And I started doing like taxi driver, and it was good money actually for me, like it, because brought a new car, and I was I was good, like I was just like working, just working, working, focusing on working, and uh, I was work a lot, like a lot. I was working uh, from nine or ten morning till three a.m. or two wow. a.m. every day, yes. So, so were you getting your work good. your work ethic for right now, huh? Yeah, it's kind of. And then yeah, two thousand three came done. Till 2003, and 2003 is actually the first uh, four days I was in Baghdad. Okay. So <clears throat> the Americans, they were smart with this war. They start attacking very early in the morning, like around, I can't remember, I heard the alarm went off in Baghdad around 6 a.m. or 5, 5 a.m. It was March 20th, 2003. And uh, I woke up one of my brothers. I thought, hey, the war started. After 30 minutes from this, we start hearing the bombs. So we were able to see from our roof where these rockets going. And there were low cruise muscles coming from the high seas somewhere. They were very low. It's just about 50 meters above the houses. Wow. And uh, yeah, you can see them. It's about like maybe 10 meters, 6 meters, 7 meters length, something like this. It looks like a like small airplane, small jet. Yeah. It has even like wings and these things. And when they were going close by, the building they want to hit or something, the rocket going to push itself up, going up and like for distance and then go down straight. Boom. 
So that's what is good to see. And uh, the members of Ba'ath Party who were armed and armies kind of uh, here and there, they were shooting these uh, rockets, but no way to put them down. But all the raids they were after uh, sunset time to the next morning. They stopped at daytime to allow for people to move away from the areas, to avoid any civilians to be involved in this. And the government at that time, I mean, Saddam Hussein government, they used uh, people like S.H.I.E.L.D., human being S.H.I.E.L.D. So they invited them into their palaces. They opened the palaces for them. They said, these palaces are not belong to Saddam. These palaces belong to the people. And they called them people palaces. Bullshit. <laughs> it's not people, but palaces. So yeah. then when they did this on the media, everything, I'm sure Saddam Hussein government wished the Americans they will hit these palaces while they were full of people. Then they will say, see, the Americans got civilians. They tried to do this. And the Americans were smarter than this, so they didn't hit any of these palaces when they were no, there's only civilians in there, or there are some civilians in there. So, so they tried to avoid to make it bloody. Yeah, I would say I can't believe that, but I totally do. Yes, we were seeing these rockets going to Saddam places, and we were happy. Yeah. And somebody asked me, how you are happy to see your country destroying? I thought, this is not my part of my country, but Saddam Hussein part. Now is the real time. This time, the world was more clean. The world was targeting only Saddam Hussein places, the power places of him, the headquarters. Never touch bridges, never touch any power plane, never touch anything that has service for the people. This is like and, a this is a very interesting thing because so you know across the world I was in college and I was actually on spring break and I remember very clearly sitting at a friend's house and you know watching it happen on the news and mm-hmm. we called it big tagline in America was shock and awe and you saw you know the missiles coming down and you just saw all all sorts of things blowing up and and from on the surface it looked it, it was crazy so the people stayed freezing they don't know what to do are they going to demonstrate in the street against Saddam and his uh, party and his groups or just sit and watch which side they should take we know the people they won't know Saddam he knows the people they don't know they won't know him but the people, they are afraid that 1991 experiment going to come back again. And again, the Americans, they will take their troops back to Saudi Arabia or Kuwait or wherever. So they just stayed. They did nothing. No one opened his mouth. Yeah. Of course, some civilians been involved in the middle. My father told me, you should go to your grandfather's house. It's more safe for this. And... My older brother moved to another area, and they stayed there. They moved to somewhere else. So the family, my father said, it's a war. If something happened, we will know all of us to die in one place. And 
yes, emotionally that's too much, but he was a smart person. Yeah, that's not uncommon. Uh, I mean, that, that, that's very smart of him. Yes, he pushed on himself, I'm sure about this. He wants just to feel that we are going to be some safe. Yeah. So I moved uh, myself to my grandfather's house. Stuff was Baghdad, about like 70, 80 miles from Baghdad. And small town, and uh, easy town, very chill town. With uh, my aunt and my grandmother was very older woman, and I was there. I told her the war started. She said, what war? I told her, war against Saddam, the Americans here. And sooner or later, they will take him down. She said, you are lying. I thought, no, I swear. This time, they are going to take him down. She said, well, we'll see. They did this before, and they did nothing. We'll see this time. And after a few days, the Americans been in the same, this town I was there. People escaped because they were shooting fire left and right. Who was shooting? Some Ba'ath Party members, they shoot, they use their AK-47 against the tanks. And that's so stupid. But yeah. they did because they are scared also from the chain, their chain. He means their chain of command. They have to shoot something. They have to do something. And not because they believe with their party. They don't, I, I know they don't believe with their party. They don't believe with Saddam Hussein. But they have to. And some of them being killed. And then the troops, they were in the city. We were worried. That people, they were worried. Because we know Saddam was crazy. And these troops here, he's ready to shoot uh, his rockets and destroy the city and kill everybody, including the Americans and the Iraqis and wherever. He doesn't care. He wants just to kill. And after eight hours, the troops turned back and they went back to their, to their base. Their base, it was between Al-Najaf and Kerbala on the main street there. And kind of, it was uh, when the Americans been in this small town, the small town Euphrates. That's the Euphrates River. Divided the town, the small town, two parts. They didn't cross the bridge. There's a bridge about 70 years old, built by the British at those days. They didn't cross it because they do have information already. They put uh, like uh, IDs or something in the bridge. And there is a, a small Iraqi army unit. They were waiting for the Americans to cross to blow up that bridge. So they didn't cross the bridge because they want to keep the bridge safe. So they pulled back after eight hours to their base. They used a base. It was originally, it was a tires company. And uh, this tires company, it's in the middle of the desert between Kerbala and Al-Najaf. It's kind of like you can say it's nowhere. It's just a desert in there. Yeah. And uh, the company wasn't there. So they used as a base for them. And when the Americans pulled themselves back to their base, after sunset time, we were at the cafes. It was like a very simple cafes. Uh, like coffee shop or something, but it's a very simple one, very traditional one. Yeah. So we 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 go there because what 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 we should do? Like we do nothing. So uh, funny things. Bath party members, some of them, <clears throat> they came out from their houses wearing their like military uniform with their AKs, and they came to the uh, to the cafe 
and they sit with us and they order some tea or coffee, whatever. While this, we didn't say anything to them. We didn't mention anything about the regime because the bad things happened back days 1991, and no, we were not going to say anything. How how did they act when uh when they were at the coffee shop? Were they still trying to you know did they still act like they were in power and kind of like it's it's kind of like they are not in the power that much, but at the same time they want not to be away uh, from their responsibilities yeah. because maybe they were scared from the regime itself they are coming after them or maybe the Americans. They came to this small town, then they are going back to Saudi Arabia or to Kuwait, they will not come back again. Then Saddam coming back again. And if he got information about them, they didn't do their job the correct way, he knows what happened to them. So they were scared from Saddam. They were worried from the people. The situation is not easy. So they were in the middle. Next day, the Iraqi group came. And their officer, I don't, I see the officer from a distance, so I don't know what is his rank. Could be a lieutenant colonel, maybe colonel. He ordered his soldiers to remove all these bombs and threw them away. And he cleared the bridge and they drove away to Babylon. And I got surprised how they did this. Wow. And that's so brave from him. He wants to keep the bridge safe. If he yeah. Had, yeah, I don't know. He has a deal with Americans, or he did this because he feels this is his bridge, his people bridge, and he wants to save it. So yeah. that's happened in my town, in my father's town. After three days, the Americans came, and they crossed the bridge, and they blocked it. They started doing like operations there. And the people, they were so happy, surrounded them. And... We start talking now. The Americans here. It's almost done. But we were start talking, kind of whispering. We were waiting back then. And people, how they can go from side to side, they use the small boats, the fishermen. So they use this, that transportation. Uh, they will pay about like maybe quarter dollars, something like this, to go from side to side. Like a, a ferry. Uh, yeah, that very. And it's enough for maybe four people, five people. A few accidents happened because people, they were like not make good balance on it or these things. Then I decided to talk to, to the Americans, tell them, hey, what's going on? Why don't open the bridge over people? People, they need to go to make shopping. The people, they want to go to the hospital on the other side. The other side, they want to come to this side. Like, what's the point to keep the bridge blocked? This stayed about 10 days in this situation. Then they opened it. They were searched the cars from both sides before they crossed the bridge. Searched the cars, allowed for them to go. Then I, I said, oh, let me go to Babylon. It's just about like 20 kilometers, like about 50 miles from the town. Because we don't have power, correct? And I was looking for cold soda, like Pepsi or Coke or anything. And I was like hungry for like specific food, like shawarma. And I know in Babylon, they do have nice place. They sell this. And I want to get out from the town. Like I'm not like going to jail myself this time. So I crossed the bridge walking 
and there's like taxis going from town to another town. So I wait for him, ask him, are you going to Babylon? He said, yes. Okay. And we did. Uh, he drove me there. He said, I'm coming back to the town around sunset time. Are you going to be uh, going back? I said, yeah, I'm going back. I want just to make a walk in here. That's all. And I make a walk. I found the place that I ate before a couple of years ago in that place. I had some food and I got some cold drink. And what I saw in there, that city, I'm mean, gonna say just 15 miles, I saw there's army still there, there's back party around. And I said, what? I can see this. Like, it's done. What they are doing here? And then I stayed waiting. The guy, maybe he's going to to stop by and pick me up. Never show up. And then one of the cars came. He said, you need the right to go to the stuff? Yeah. So I, I gave myself the thing to go with these people. And it's safe in there. It's very safe. And they drove me back to the town. It was around 10 p.m., by the way. So it was late. And I saw U.S. troops prepare themselves going to Babylon. And one of the soldiers, very young soldier, looks like 18 years old, maybe 17. He said, sir, sir, may I got some dinar? I thought, what? May I got some dinar? The uh, money dinar, Iraqi dinar? He said, oh, you speak English? Thought, yeah, a little bit. So he said, yeah, just a dollar. Can you give me like, I don't know, like a, do- a dinar for it? Which means a thousand dinar, for example. That's it, what is equal. At those days, one dollar equal to three thousand dinar. Oh, wow. So, yeah, this is very, been very expensive. I told him, okay, take this a thousand dinar. He said, oh, thank you. This is a dollar for you. I told him, no, keep it. It's not a big deal. He said, <laughs> oh, no, please. I told him, it's actually like a thousand dinar is not less than a half dollar. So, what I would take from him. He said, oh, just take it. I told him, no, you just take it. And by the way, you're going to that direction, to Babylon? He said, I don't know. We are going that direction, but I don't know where. I told him, okay, just in case that you know, in your way, about five, six miles from here, there is like dry Greek, but there is some uh, RPGs people there waiting for you. So just in case, telling you guys. And good luck. Then he ran to his sergeant or officer. Then he come back around to me. He said, are you ready to walk with us? I thought, uh... No. John, are you ready to come with us? I thought, uh, no, because I want to go to my aunt and my grandmother there, the house. They were worried about me. Because 10 p.m. and the situation, no, they were worried about me. And if I go with them, how am I going to communicate with my family? How am I going to call them? There's no communications. And there's no cell phones at those days at all. Yeah. So, uh, no, I can't. I do have family that I can't leave them. I say, oh, okay, okay, I understand. And they left. They were using some Kuwaiti and Saudi interpreters, something like maybe some Iraqi Americans or Arab Americans uh, interpreters at that days. But they were in big shortage with interpreters. Yeah. So they kept going to there. The other funny thing, Saddam put a big reward for anyone shoot a helicopter or uh, American vehicles, whatever things. 200 million dinar, which is mean about, uh, those days, about $80,000. You're so quick on it on the, uh, on the conversion. Yeah. Oh, I have no clue. 
and uh, there's a reward if you shoot helicopter and if you kill any American soldiers the reward is about 50 million dinar which is mean about $40,000 and if you do this they will reward you so it looks like Saddam pushed the money put the money with the the high rank uh, party members and at that night five or six Apache helicopters they did some raid in the city is called Musayib, which is mean is about 30 miles from to the north of my town, the small town right. I was, and it's about like 60 miles southwest Baghdad. So, uh, and their way back, one of the helicopters got some technical problems. So they couldn't keep going to the base. The pilots had to uh, landing in the in the fields, and they left it. In the morning, I heard two stories. I heard the pilots being picked up by the other choppers they were around, and the other stories, the pilots, there were two of them, they were hiding in the field, but they'd been found by uh, one of the farmers, and he informed the authorities about, about them to make the money. So I'm not sure about which ones, which one, which story it was correct. Then okay. in the morning, because we, all the area we heard about the choppers, they were around and these things, they were loud, very loud. And in the morning they found this big Apache was just there in the uh, in the field. So the authority came, uh, some army people and the guy who in charge of Bath Party and the whole area. So he asked. Who's this field for? So old, very old gentleman said, oh, it's my field. He told him, mm, do you have a rifle? He said, yes, sir, I do have a rifle. Okay, when you're for a rifle, shoot the tail of this helicopter. And he shot the tail. He told him, congratulations, you pushed this helicopter down. 250 million to you. <laughs> so they gave him, yeah. They gave him, I heard, 5 million dinars only. From the 250, they gave him only 5 million. And the guy who in charge of a bath party, he put the rest in his pocket. So, it's very sense. They do it. They it's always completely do it. believable. Yes. And the Iraqi army came with their big truck. And they put the helicopter on the truck to take it to Baghdad to check. What is this? It's Apache. You know, there's a lot of uh, military secrets of this. And don't forget, these, uh, these uh, equipment, they do have some GPS devices, of course. So the Americans, they located their chopper and the way, and they sent to F-16, and they shoot this one and destroy it. Totally destroy it. <laughs> because... Wow. Yeah, you will not allow for your enemies to know about your your equipment. Yeah. So that's one of the stories that happened like this. Then we heard it was uh, April 9th, all done. Baghdad been taken, and the big statue of Saddam Hussein fall down on the on the floor, and all done. People they were happy. People expect a new age in their life. Right. It was the best opportunity for the people to have a new life for themselves, to gather together again. But it was a new bad age because still, Ba'ath Party there, 
And still, they want to revenge. Find out more about this revenge, Sam's thrilling time as an interpreter, and how he finally made his way out of Iraq in our next episode. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to the show. If you liked it, please share it with family and friends, and please consider leaving a rating, or even better, a review. It really does help. And while you're at it, hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to connect with the show, you can visit the website at nstiwpodcast.com. Follow on Twitter at nstiwpodcast1 or on Instagram or Facebook at nstiwpodcast where you will receive additional notifications as well as additional content. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to see it continue to dive into bigger and better stories, consider donating. It's easy. Navigate to the website and you can easily donate over PayPal. On a final note, If you or someone you know has a story worth telling, please submit a summary via a contact form on the website for consideration. Thank you, and again, get out there and do something worth telling about.